three verses today. Count them. Three. Three verses. We are going to cover three verses. What a deal. So let's begin. Let's read our passage. Genesis 1, verses 3 to 5. said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Verse 3 is the best one. God said, Let there be light. And by golly, there was light. Here we have the first explicit instance in the creative acts of God speaking something into existence. We assume that the same method was employed in verses 1 and 2. And there's evidence for that. But in verse 3, it is stated explicitly. As we read in our previous session from Psalm 33, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. For He spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. So there we have the psalmist stating that, yes, it was by His word that God made even the heavens in verse 1. I really like what Leupold writes here. No one need think it strange that an inanimate object is addressed as animate when God speaks to the light. The situation is really even stranger. God speaks to the things that are not that they might be. I like that. God speaks to the things that are not. It did not exist so that they might be. The nature of creation requires just that. That's a a wonderful thought, that, that God speaks to things that do not even yet exist so that they will exist. And of course, that's what chapter 1 is all about, and portions of chapter 2. Darkness, which is the Hebrew hoshek, God had already created because it was over the surface of the deep, remember, in verse 2. Now, in contrast to this darkness, he creates light. And there are generally two ways that, well, better late than never. (laughs) He knew I was going to say something. Okay, generally two ways that verse 3 has been interpreted. The first, the sun was created in verse 1 along with the rest of the heavens. This is the the first position, very common. The sun was created in verse 1 along with the rest of the heavens, but its light did not penetrate the darkness enshrouding the earth until verse 3. That is, verse 3 is interpreted from an earth's surface perspective as if God said, let there be light upon the earth. And as Sailhammer puts it, 
Verse 3 then does not describe the creation of the sun, but the appearance of the sun through the darkness. This, the position expressed by Sailhammer, assumes there is no light without the sun. But of course runs into a problem when later the sun, the greater light, is created in verses 14 to 19. Oops. Or there's a second interpretation. Light here, which is the Hebrew or, O-R, represents the primordial element of light, divorced from any object that will later employ it. This, the second interpretation, follows our interpretation of the earth's creation in verse 2. and the overall progression of creation itself. Remember what I pointed out in session three. God's workflow in this creative process was, is to first create a space, and then later, maybe just the next day, but later he modifies it, he improves it, he puts something into it. He creates the earth, And then he creates the things on the earth. And then after he creates the things that are on the earth, he creates man to be in charge of all those things on the earth. That's his workflow. When God created the heavens and the earth, they both were essentially formless and void. This was his creation of spaces, as it were that would later be filled in piece by piece, which fits perfectly with the textual progression. Verse 3 does not say, let there be sunlight, or let there be the sun, but let there be light. That is, let there now be the fundamental element of light itself. Fundamental element of life. It's light itself. I can't talk. A light that God will later put to use in myriad ways, in myriad objects, throughout His universe. Now, are we confused by an apparent difference between light and the sun? that the former was created on day one and the latter was created on day four? Asaf, in his Psalm 74, delineated them in a similar fashion. Psalm 74, 16, Yours is the day, speaking to Yahweh, Yours is the day, yours also is the night. You have established the light and the sun. So he he speaks of them as different things. God created the light and God created the sun. Spurgeon agrees. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Both light and the light bearer are of thee. So Spurgeon delineates them as well. Humans, as a rule, have small minds that think small with a small scope. We tend to think pragmatically, even mechanically. If we can't imagine something, we often think it's impossible. We can't do it. How can God do it? 
As individuals with small minds and a small scope, we too often, even without meaning to, diminish God's capabilities by unconsciously imagining His abilities somehow akin to our own. Maybe it comes from being created in His image. Because then we extend that, that must mean He's like us. No, it means aspects of us are like Him. As usual, we get it backwards. As a result, we have those who labor to explain, for example, the Egyptian plagues and the parting of the Reed Sea in Exodus by earthly means. Well, minerals sweeping out of the southern cataracts to explain the blood of the Nile. Uh, oh, how many times have I read that? The, the, the red, rich soil washes out, floods out, and comes down the Nile. <clears throat> oh, have has have any of you watched the the most recent movie about the exit? Oh, it's hideous! It's absolutely hideous. <clears throat> the special effects are great. I mean, that's a real good popcorn movie. But my word! Oh, and he's one of our favorite directors. Uh, what's his name? Yeah, yeah, Scott. Yeah, it that's heathen. That's <laughs> I digress. <clears throat> yeah, shame on you. It's Isla. Isla did it. Uh or or freak atmospheric disturbances blowing back the waters of the Reed Sea. Reed. Take your pick. But isn't it interesting? It's a natural phenomenon, but it blows in two directions at the same time. That's, that's interesting. But God does not require earthly, mechanical means to perform His will. He may employ such means, but He needn't depend on them. Thus, in our context of verses 3 to 5, there are those who conclude that even though the Son is spoken into existence on the fourth day, Verses 14 and 19, the Son must have been created when God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1. For how else could there be light in verse 3 if there's no sun? There has to be a sun to have light. Well, that's reasonable to a mind with a small scope, but why then does he specifically create the sun and moon during the fourth day? No, here we see the divine power to separate light from the created instruments that shed it. God creates light. And then He takes that light and assigns it to stars, to the sun, to different things. Here's how Calvin puts it. John Calvin. It did not happen from inconsideration or by accident that the light preceded the sun and the moon. To nothing are we more prone than to tie down the power of God to those instruments the agency of which He employs. The sun and moon supply us with light. And according to our notions, we so include this power to give light in them that if they were taken away from the world, it would seem impossible for any light to remain. Therefore the Lord, by the very order of the creation, bears witness that He holds in His hand the light, 
which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. That's Calvin. Well said. And he does for the final eternal state on the new earth in the new Jerusalem the same thing. Revelation 21, 22-24, And I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I continue to be impressed by the parallels between the very beginning and the very end. It's almost as if there was a plan. God says, we don't need no stinking sun or moon. We've got God who's just created light. Verse 4. From the account of the Egyptian plagues, we learn that God can create a darkness that is far more than just the absence of light. Turn, please, to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus 10. And let's read verses 21 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all of the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Funny thing. Now this sounds like a darkness similar to that of the primordial earth in verse 2. Yet the text says that Israel had light in their places of habitation. I I take it that both of these, the tangible darkness and the localized light, were of supernatural origin. And God saw that the light was good. Once again, we must detach ourselves from our human, earthbound perspective to grasp what is being said here. Not least because this is the first of a series of goods in the creation epic. And this is challenging. Not because it's technically difficult, but that this word translated good, which is the Hebrew tov, T-O-B, tov, is used in so many different ways in the Old Testament. Thus, it's not surprising that there's no consensus among the various commentators uh, for how it's intended here. To wit... Alexander says, good here means not perfect, but approved. Whereas, Leupold says, not approved, but perfect. Hence, worthy of praise. Sailhammer, beneficial for man. I'm not sure where he gets that from. Wilson, fitting, right, as a thing should be. And John Calvin says, approved. My thoughts incline toward William Wilson's definition found in his classic work, Old Testament Word Studies, 1870. I would express it this way. Now, Wilson says, 
Good here means fitting, right, as a thing should be. Here's how I would express it. I have made this exactly as I mean to, and it is just as it should be for the purpose intended. I know what I'm doing. Thus we shy away from the idea of perfection, which usually in God's Word means complete. Complete means perfection. Perfection means complete. That's, it's included in the same idea. Because some of the things God declares good, especially early on, will either be altered or added to later on. So they're not complete. The earth is certainly not complete at this time. But it's good. The light is good. Just so, we probably should not place too great a load on this solitary word. For note that God does not declare everything He does in creation good. And I've included a list in your your handout. For example, look at verses 6 to 8. Here He separates the waters below from the waters above. that's, That's coming up. Thereby creating the first heaven, which we refer to as the sky or immediate atmosphere. But He does not declare it good. Does this mean it isn't? Well, not at all. Likewise, he creates the primordial earth in verse 2, but does not declare anything good until he creates light, verses 3 to 4. The earth in verse 2 is not complete, but does that mean it is not just as he intended? I doubt it. I think it's precisely as he intended it. This business of the light was good, things being good. We should not miss the parallelism taking place between this passage and 2 Corinthians 4.6, John 1, 4-10, and other passages in the New Testament. Let's look at just one of those. Turn please to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 6. <coughs> Who's got it? Didn't I didn't I make one didn't I do that? Oh, it's in the sidebar. Shame on me. Okay, I'll read it. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Eventually, God will declare the entirety of His creation good. Indeed, very good. But when He created the initial earth in (coughs) verses 1-2, to it's described as formless, void, and dark. God created all that, but He does not declare it good. The first thing He creates and deems good is light, and God saw that the light was good. In John's Gospel, the Word, Christ, is and brings to the world, not darkness, but light. 
Likewise, we are called to walk in the light, not darkness. Isaiah 2.5, 1 John 1.7. So, I'm not suggesting that anything in Genesis 1 not declared good is evil, as in darkness in the New Testament is evil. But there must be some sharing of the idea here because in the New Testament, light is something more than just turning the lights on. Christ is light. He brings light. But the people wanted the darkness. So there has to be some of that going on here. That is, perhaps, just perhaps, the earth in darkness is not good. It's not good yet because it doesn't have any light. He's just, God has just created light. He has not created the sun. Then the passage goes on. Oops, I got some more here. Got to follow on my little red arrows. That is to say that light in God's Word as a whole means something. It is substantial. It, it means something good. And in general, darkness is not good. We're not called to walk, walk in darkness. We're to walk in light. So, God separates them. And God separated the light from the darkness. We find another clue in Isaiah's prophecy that this light and darkness, not created in verses 4 to 5, but separated one from the other, are far more than just light beaming from a sun and its lack thereof. Turn please to Isaiah. This one I know I handed out. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you through, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity, I am Yahweh who does all these. Boy, that's a strong passage. Especially in that translation. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Don't mess with me. That's profound. In verse 4 of our passage, God has not yet invented day and night. Nor has He created the sun and the moon. He has just created the elements light and darkness. In verse 2. And now He separates them. This does not suggest, suggest that they were once one or once tangled up with each other, but that God now creates a distinction, a space, even a time interval, as with the intermission or interval during a play. 
You, you separate act, act two from act one. You, you want the audience to kind of resettle their minds before you begin the second act. That's what the word here means, the idea of separating in time and place. Light and darkness henceforth will not share the same space. There is one or there is the other, but never both together or at the same time. I rack my brain trying to take issue with that, but I don't think it's possible. I personally believe that light, that peculiar supernatural light unattached from any object of illumination, and darkness, that, that indefinable darkness that covered the face of the initial earth, belong to that category of God things that will remain a mystery so long as we mere humans reside on this earth and away from the physical presence of our God. I, I don't think we can quite get it. There's something more to these than our feeble brains can handle. They are, they are supernatural. Not the light beaming to us from the sun, but the light that gives light to the sun. That's supernatural. That's a God thing. No. Read it. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Obviously there's a lot of things in there, but it's just interesting again. Well, that's the point, isn't it? There's a lot of things in that light. It's more than we can imagine. Is it? So much more than us. If we could understand everything. Yes. Good point. Yeah. I'd like to understand it. God is not trying to justify himself to us. No. Or what he does. I am Yahweh, there is no other. He doesn't give us all the information we need. He could give us a little bit more. (laughs) He will eventually. It's amazing. He says, You are the. eternal life, that life that is in us he's in, in the first, even the first few verses of John 1 is the life and the life is the life I'm going to take issue with you on one, one small point 2 Corinthians I can never remember where it is but it's my verse 2 Corinthians isn't it 2 Corinthians 4 Seven, isn't it? Yes. For God said, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpass that's that's an ugly clay pot. That's how it translates. An ugly clay pot. The kind of pot that when it cracks you throw it away and get another. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The point I would take issue with just a little, 
I don't think we reflect because that suggests a hard surface. I think this is talking about he his light is in us and we throw it back out. That's a little more than reflecting. We're like John in that sense. You you were referring to John chapter 1. We're like John the the or, uh, John the Baptist. He came to bear he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Yeah. So the true light was coming into the world. Don't show off. <laughs> I marvel at the at young minds. Well, no, I'd go mine's better than my own. I I still remember Merrill. He knew so much scripture in his head that he he he'd get he couldn't talk fast enough to and and over here it says I wish I could do that. I have to write it down, Merrill, I'm sorry. Okay, verse 5. Good discussion. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. Now remember, He hasn't created the sun or the moon yet. And here is, at a glance, a deep mystery. Now that the two are separate, God names them. The light He calls day, the darkness He calls night, yet He has not yet created the sun and moon which will happen in verse 14 and following. Even so, God declares that all that has thus far been created, He sets into one day. And there was evening and there was morning one day. The Venerable Church Father, Augustine, helps us understand how light and darkness can be separate from day and night yet also be associated with them by God's will. Quote, All light is not day, nor all darkness night. But light and darkness alternating in a regular order constitute day and night. Kylan Delish puts it this way, Quote, the first day did not consist of the primeval darkness and the origination of light, but was formed after the creation of the light by the first interchange of evening and morning. Now, I realize that can be a little confusing. Maybe T. Desmond Alexander can help. And there was evening and there was morning one day. He writes, Day one describes the creation of a repeated pattern of darkness followed by light. Light does not eradicate darkness, it merely alternates with it. Day and night are formed. This results in the creation of time. Gets back to what you were saying last week. Uh, the guy with the white beard there that looks like Father Time, you know. <laughs> this chronological structure is then reflected in the rest of the chapter. As day gives way to night in the evening and as night gives way to day in the morning. As elsewhere in the earliest books of the Old Testament, the chronological day is understood to begin with sunrise. Later, 
Due to Babylonian influence after the capture of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Judeans viewed the day as starting with sunset. So, the Jews, Hebrews, switched. They used to think that time, the day began in the evening. But after they went into exile, they, the day starts with sunset. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. They originally thought it began in the morning. Then after the exile, they, they just adapt, they adopted the, the ways of their captors. So this, you know, I'm stripping out all of the, there's a lot of people say, well, but there's this, it has this. It's, it, they changed their ways, and I don't think it's worthy of much more than that. <coughs> As we reach the conclusion of this passage in verse 5, we face two decisions we must make. The first and the lesser of the two, nobody's going to lose their faith over this one, is, is it first day or one day? Now some of your translations say, and the first day. The NASB, God's Word, says one day. Within our common versions, only the NASB and the LSB translate this literally, one day. It's a minor point, in my opinion. It's not worthy of much of our time. Your faith or theology is not going to be determined by this. Nonetheless, we should always endeavor to interpret God's Word as accurately as possible. The Hebrew is Yom Akkad, and there is no article, there's no the in the text. The difference would be this. First day suggests the first of many or several. First, second, third, fourth, fifth. That is a succession. The text does not get ordinal. That is a number in a series. Until after day one. Instead, the text is one day, meaning something like, all that has just been described was created in one day. And I think I've included in in your handout uh, also the difference, if you're struggling with the difference, one in verse 5 is numeral, cardinal, singular, absolute. Cardinal means of main importance, principle, chief. Whereas, second, the word translated second in verse 8, is numeral, ordinal, singular, absolute. It's a small detail, but let's get it right. The numbers, the day numbers are ordinal after day one. Second, and the more important of the two decisions we must make. Does day day mean 24 hours or an indeterminate period? Some of you have been, are attending this class just for that reason. I'll just touch on this lightly here, but we will return for a more in-depth look at this important question in our next session. As we saw in in our last session, some, such as Donald Barnhouse, would explain the supposed conflict between the Bible and science by creating or imagining a gap theory. 
a gap between the first and second verse of the Bible, which places a second fallen chaotic earth after a first pristine earth. Among other advantages, this permits this second earth to exist for an indeterminate period, allowing time for what science claims is the incredible age of this earth. All of this takes place, as they claim, between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. If you, want, if you weren't here last week, it's in session 5. Go get the notes. A second group prefers to explain this assumed conflict between Bible and science by claiming that the word day in Genesis 1 can mean eon, or period, a period of time, an indeterminate period of perhaps thousands, if not millions of years. This allows those in this camp to fit into this first week of creation all the innumerable millennia necessary to age this earth into its present state. I will argue, however, in our next session, that there is no reason to corrupt the meaning of God's written word. And why is it that always the Bible must compromise and not science. Why is that? That there is no reason to corrupt the meaning of God's written word to harmonize the truth. This earth can be as ancient as some believe. And creation can be accomplished in six literal days. Stay tuned. We got a few more minutes. Any thoughts? Questions? Incredible what? Incredible story. Yeah. I hope it's more incredible than you thought. Because when you dig in, yeah, every time, I, I don't care where you are in God's Word, when you dig in, you go, wow. I stopped at when God saw. This time, when you were reading that, God saw. I, 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 uh, I debated whether to include that because there are some commentators who really land on that that God saw it uh, but I decided not to guess I should have but it is a, a big deal this gives you more reason to worship yeah well don't we do that isn't that a little bit of that's, that's something we can identify with isn't it it's what we do after we see that, that makes it... I, I go back to when Linda's dad and I built our barn. Now I know, as Wendell said, that isn't a barn. Let me show you a barn. <laughs> Bless his heart. Uh, 
it's like a one and a half car garage, but we call it our barn because that's where all the that's where all the implements are. Yeah, yeah. No, Linda has a shed out by the garden, but I have a barn. And one morning, we were done with it, pretty much. And I walked out there, and I just stopped and looked at my barn. I thought, wow. And I praised God for my barn. Now, her dad and I, and with some help from Linda and her mom, back when they were able to do that, we're the ones who sweated. We're the ones who paid for it. We're the ones who nailed every nail in place, lifted every, about killed ourselves, lifting the, the rafters in place. One day was so hot and humid, her dad just kind of collapsed. <laughs> uh, we did all the work, but when I saw that barn, I praised God. I thanked Him for it. I saw the barn, and I praised God. And that's what I think of when you talk about God saw. God saw what He created and says, that's good. That's good. Did a good thing here. Let's keep going. Now, there's more to God saw than that, but I think that's part of it. Anything else? Yes, I was wondering if your cats are barn cats. No. No. <laughs> no. They are family members. They are our kids. That's a serious... Yeah. You open the barn door on that one. No, there are there are family. Well, then we won't share cat stories. <laughs> Not bad ones. You can... Well, I think it was Greg. Who, uh, the day that... Uh, <sighs> Uh, Gary and Sherry Crandall, her, their daughter and her then husband, needed to find a home for their two cats, brother and sister. And they just, they, so they gave them to us to foster them for a while. Uh, but the, the exchange took place here at the church. And Greg looked in the carrier and said, Cats? <laughs> it was like a dog maybe but cats give me a break what are they worth well they're in their 16th year now they, after six months we contacted her and said listen you've only visited them once in six months they love us we love them can we keep them yeah Merlin and Morgan and they, they're in their 16th year now. They, they have some arthritis, and Merlin gets six pills a day, three in the morning, three at night, and Morgan gets half half that. Yeah, and they get treats after that. So, so cats are worth pills. They're worth keeping alive. I, we we took that seriously. He he just ingested something about well, cats put him in the hospital, and I thought, oh no, he shook our hand the other day. <laughs> Father, we rejoice in your creation. 
and we rejoice that we are part of it. We haven't reached that yet in the story, but we are a part of it. You've left us here to be in charge of this earth. And we rejoice that you are God and our Father. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And this book we study is your holy word. And we take it for that. We trust it. We follow it. So thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.